Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Before I jump into today's episode, I want to spend a second and tell you guys about the newly launched Trailblazers Agency and Expert Network. At South Asian Trailblazers, we've long been dedicated to elevating and convening extraordinary leaders through our media platform and our community-wide events. Our agency and expert network is simply the next step toward fulfilling that mission. We're forging impactful collaborations between exceptional leaders and visionary organizations. If you're part of a company or organization looking for fresh and diverse voices to speak at your next summit, conference, or event, or represent you in a new brand campaign, please get in touch. If you're looking for someone to offer you expertise on a project that you're working on, reach out and we can plug you into our expert network of trailblazers across industries. And finally, if you're a speaker or a leader looking to connect with companies who want to share in your expertise, feel free to reach out. You can learn all about us at southasiantrailblazers.com slash trailblazers-agency. And with that, let's jump into our episode. It's hard to believe that we are at the conclusion of seven seasons of South Asian Trailblazers. With over 70 stories of trailblazers told across industries and across the globe. For our finale today, I am thrilled to welcome Amol Shaw. Amol is a member of the go-to-market team at OpenAI, one of the world's leading artificial intelligence companies and the creator of ChatGPT. Amol's career spans roles at tech giants like Facebook and TikTok. And more recently, he served as the chief revenue officer for blockchain startup QuickNode. Prior to this foray into the tech C-suite, Amol served as the head of the U.S. Disruptor team and as a founding sales leader at TikTok. Between 2015 and 2019, Amol spent four years leading platform sales at Facebook. He began his career in the investment banking and investment divisions at Goldman Sachs and got his start in tech in 2013 at Rocket Fuel, an ad tech company. He got his start in the sector after graduating from Harvard Business School. And he also holds a BS in economics from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. In October of 2023, Preceding a period of immense controversy, Amol joined OpenAI's team. He joined the go-to-market division to drive partnerships with the company's largest customers and advance OpenAI's mission to bring the benefits of artificial intelligence to all of humanity. I'm so excited to chat with Amol today, both about his position at the cutting edge of AI and about his pivots from finance to tech and beyond. Amol, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. And what a nice, lovely introduction. Really excited for our conversation. Absolutely. And I just have to mark that our academic experiences are exactly the same, except flipped. So I already feel like I have a shared connection with you in that realm, and I'm excited to chat. Yeah, exactly. I saw you're at Harvard for undergrad, and then now you're at Wharton. And so it's so interesting. We'll have to compare notes. Absolutely. So I want to go back to the beginning of the story and understand a little bit about your upbringing and how that shaped your career interests in finance and then eventually in tech. 
Yeah. Like so many Indian Americans who are growing up in this country, a lot of my experience was driven by some of the poor values that a lot of us have. And so I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. My dad, he came to this country to study and actually went to Penn to be a chemical engineer. He got his PhD there. Wow. My mom, she raised the family, but later went on to become an accountant after she was done doing that. And growing up in our family, a couple of key things that are really similar to a lot of what we all have is just around this focus on education. Of course. And this this focus on really just trying to do, I think it was like education, it was math for me and entrepreneurship were just kind of like the key elements of my childhood. So my parents were really focused on making sure that we were studying and that was a core part of growing up. Books and reading and we had all sorts of opportunities, right, to engage intellectually. My dad, he was, with a chemical engineering background, was really focused on making sure that we studied math and sciences, like a lot of Indians. And so middle school, I just remember in fifth or sixth grade on Saturday mornings, other people would have soccer practice and my dad would be teaching us or trying to teach logarithms to us. I don't know if I quite got it, (laughs) but early on, numbers and just sort of the familiarity with and focus on that is really important. And then for me, this entrepreneurial element, I think a lot of Indians have that. And so my parents and my grandparents, they all went and pursued entrepreneurial paths. So this idea and this notion around being able to not just work for others, but around being able to take advantage of opportunities and being entrepreneurial was something that was just part of our culture. For me, it manifested early on in terms of just my first sales experience. I was going door-to-door selling magazines for one of our middle school subscription drives. And that was probably, I think I got like an award that year just in terms of selling like the most number of magazines. And that was for me, my first sales experience. And I really just liked that, the experience of being able to work really hard and it paying off. So those are some of the sort of key parts for me in terms of growing up. Very cool. Now, eventually you went on to study undergrad at Wharton and then pursued your MBA at Harvard Can you talk about those early experiences you had in finance at Goldman Sachs and in consulting at McKinsey? I mean, as a lot of us know, many students often get ushered into those industries and they offer this level of optionality. But what aspects about these roles did you find most appealing and the least appealing? And what prompted your eventual shift towards the tech industry? Sure. So I went to Wharton. It was a great place in terms of combining just this math focus and entrepreneurship. And at the time, a lot of my classmates, the smartest folks were going to work in the investment banks. And that was a really popular path that a lot of folks were pursuing. Absolutely. And so early on, that was where I was really, really focused. And so I went to Wall Street and went to Goldman. Goldman was just a great foundational experience. It was a place in terms of where you could really quickly learn how to pick apart the drivers of value for a company It was really a great environment in terms of just working with intensity and then also just learning some of these sort of foundational elements around how to approach the capital markets, how to quickly get up to speed in terms of a company, in terms of trends in an industry. And those are some of the sort of key takeaways that I took that stayed with me throughout the rest of my professional career. Wow. I started my career in finance, and I do understand the ways in which it can just set you up for success by teaching you those early fundamentals. So I'm curious, 
having had those experiences early on, you ended up going on to pursue your MBA at Harvard. Can you talk to me a little bit about your early experiences in finance and consulting and operating and beyond? What aspects did you find most and least appealing? What eventually prompted your shift towards the tech sector? Yeah. So my first operating role was really formative because I just recognized that when you are in finance, I think you get a good fundamental skill set in terms of being able to take apart the drivers of company value. But when you're in an operating role, you have a lot more a way of actually being involved in the business. You can impact an entire organization. And that's really satisfying. And so I spent a little bit of time before business school in an operating company. That really kind of had an effect on me. I recognized I wanted to do that for a time. There was also this big tech boom, which was starting to take shape. So this is around 2010. And so I knew I wanted to go back and focus on technology and use business school as a way then to make that move. Those were kind of the key elements for me in terms of why I wanted to go from working in finance to something which is more of an operating role. And I use business school as an opportunity both to go to grad school, because a lot of Indian parents think it's really important to have a graduate degree, build up a network, talk to other people, build up more relationships in technology versus just the world of finance that I was in. Absolutely. And so those are a little bit in terms of just the drivers of my thinking at the time. As someone who is pursuing her MBA today, certainly, at least in part at the behest of her parents, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. But to me, it really does sound like business school set the foundation for your pivot into tech. I wonder if you can share a little bit about what it was like getting your start in the sector at an ad tech company like Rocket Fuel, and then eventually being party to some of the biggest tech companies in the world like Facebook and TikTok. Yeah. So tech companies were the big thing. And what I noticed was so many of these places were driven by advertising. So around this time, right, you started to have the rise of Google. Facebook had just gone public and they were starting to make waves with their dominance in the area of mobile. The field of marketing, and if you think about how so many of these companies are advertising driven, was also moving towards a place where there was much more of a premium that was placed on measurement. And so the math part of me just got excited just thinking about that and the potential to apply technology in different ways where you could then start to drive real value. And so this whole industry called ad tech started to be created. So I joined this company called Rocket Fuel. And uh, Rocket Fuel was my first artificial intelligence company. And they had challenges. Yeah. They were starting to apply AI to the field of advertising, more desktop focused. It was an interesting entry point into this space. I had a banking background, and so I had no business in terms of being in ad sales or anything like that, and being in technology in general. But Rockefeller gave me that opportunity to get into the space. And so for me, that was just really incredibly grateful for that experience. Their business was challenged. I started to see the rise of Facebook. They started to really drive their dominance in the area of mobile. And mobile was really this big technological disruption uh, and wave. And I saw some of the most innovation that was coming from Facebook. They had a depth of talent that was there. I knew I wanted to join. So at Facebook, I joined around 2015. And that was my first actual sales role that I had to date. Very cool. Now, as you said, it was your first sales role to date. And it involved covering the world's largest e-commerce and marketplace companies. 
Can you share specific instances where the C-suite relationships you cultivated helped companies adapt to the major technological shifts? As you said, it was started to play such a big role on mobile, and I think for small businesses, largely in the macro environment. But what exactly was your role and responsibilities in making that shift happen? Sure. So at the time, so many of these e-commerce companies were starting to also look at mobile as this big potential threat, but also opportunity for them in terms of the growth of their business. Mobile presented its own set of challenges in terms of how do you actually measure? Can it actually drive value? If you recall at the time of Facebook's IPO, it ended up actually crashing because their advertising business wasn't quite mature, right? And so it was a challenge for a lot of these marketers, for a lot of these companies to actually prove out that mobile could be a driver for their business growth. And so Facebook at the time was this challenger player, this upstart that needed to work with some of these companies to help prove out the business case or how mobile could drive their value, specifically through Facebook. There are a couple of things that I really took away from working with these companies. So these were big engineering-led organizations. The part of the business I was in was focused on this API connection from these companies to the Facebook platform. So it involved a lot of engineering teams on both sides. It was fairly technical. But if you were successful, what you could do was then start to create a new model for how we could work and drive e-commerce. And that model started to be the basis for a lot of the things that Facebook did going forward that enabled them to create all of these different disruptive companies that were able to find new consumers with the platform. And so it was a great experience in terms of being able to be introducing a new tech, trying to create the business case with some of these very sophisticated organizations And then also ensuring, right, that you can start to drive real business value so that you could start to create more of a replicability in terms of our engagement with companies that ended up becoming more than half of Facebook's business. Absolutely. Now, it's funny because you alluded to Facebook as the challenger and upstart in this space, but a number of years later in 2019, you would join the new challenger and upstart in the space, which would be TikTok. As a founding leader and head of their U.S. disruptor team, can you share a little bit about your experience moving from the parent of all social media to working with the new kid on the block? Yeah, it was definitely, I spent almost four years at Facebook. And during that time, they had definitely become the incumbent. And it was really fun to join this new challenger, as you described it, right? TikTok at the time was less than 500 people. A former colleague of mine from Facebook had recently joined TikTok, and so he reached out. So it was on my radar for six months or so, and there were definitely a lot of things about it that just really appealed to me. It was was described as the one last sunny place on the internet, um, (laughs) its mission, which is to inspire creativity and create joy. There were so many parts of it that were just really appealing, particularly when you started to have a lot of the challenges that, that Facebook was starting to face when it came to some issues that they, those platforms were facing at the time. And then you coupled that with, there had been other social networks that were trying to establish these businesses, but were failing because they didn't necessarily have the, the scale and the size. 
And what immediately just stood out was just sort of how quickly TikTok was growing. And so I forgot the exact stat, but I think they had grown faster than Instagram, faster than WhatsApp. And so they had this trajectory that really gave you the sense of conviction in terms of just their ability to actually rival the then dominant platform. And so to be able to join a business that was still so young and to be part of the new kid on the block, just for me, it was just one of those opportunities they just didn't give up. Yeah. What were the unique challenges of working at TikTok? I mean, we've seen the rising political backlash against the company. I'm curious what it was like leaving the platform in the U.S. as a founding leader of the Disruptor team. How did you work to navigate the challenges and contribute to the team's success while also operating in an increasingly hostile political environment? Yeah. So a couple of things there. I think that the challenge that they had at the time was that they were trying to create more of an e-com business that was replicable. And so they had a challenge around how do you start to create a recurring revenue business focused on e-com? For me, having spent so much time thinking about the specific needs of e-commerce and a chance to really roll that out in a way where you could start to prove that value was something which I thought was just really compelling. And so that was something which got me really excited at the same time, what was really unique, and going to your point around what are some of the challenges around TikTok, it was the first instance where I was working at a company that was from Northern California. And so there are definitely some elements in terms of just how Chinese business culture can be very different when you're in some of these organizations. And so definitely it took some time for me in terms of just adjusting to how to operate and to work in those types of environments. So we didn't have org charts, for example. Wow. There was a lot of information silos. And so just understanding how do you operate in that kind of environment was definitely a challenge that I hadn't necessarily foreseen. Then you introduce a time. So I joined late 2019, 2020, if you may recall, right? There was a bunch of headlines that TikTok was in because the company was at the center of this big geopolitical storm. So you had the then administration that was enacting potentially an executive order. And so how do you navigate right, the challenges of geopolitics while you're trying to build a business? That was something which I hadn't necessarily foreseen when I was joining the company. Wow. Super, super interesting. I'm curious, you had gone from these more, I would argue, sterile and structured environments, working in finance and consulting, obviously prior and and a little bit post your MBA experience. What was it like being a part of the darlings of Silicon Valley? And to your point, TikTok, it sounds like, didn't even totally match the organizational culture or structure of some of the companies that we typically find built here. But what was the shift in that experience? Did you find yourself naturally enjoying the world of tech? Did you miss some of the structure of more traditional consulting and finance? I think there are advantages and disadvantages of both. When you're in some of these very structured environments, I think that gives you a way of thinking and you can apply that to a lot of different experiences later on in your career. But at the same time, when you are in a company that's going through hyper growth, sometimes the environment that you're operating in, that type of thinking can actually be slowing you down. And so what I learned from being in a place like TikTok was just the importance of something like velocity. Interesting. So the fact, right, that the company was so focused on shipping, but that really gave them the ability to accelerate 
and to catch up to other rivals where planning sometimes start to slow things down to a huge degree. I learned a lot about some of the benefits of, in some instances, right, being able to put together a plan, shipping, and then iterating as you went along. And while not everybody right at the company had consulting or banking backgrounds, actually did hire a number of people, the team that I had, that came from non-traditional backgrounds. So not sales backgrounds, but from consulting and things like that, because we were trying to approach the market and the problem with a skill set that was really focused on analyzing a problem, but then quickly being able to make decisions and operate. And so in many instances, right, you can have kind of the best of both of those ways of thinking. Absolutely. Super, super interesting. I would love to spend more time on your experiences at Facebook and TikTok, but after your role at TikTok, you pivoted to a company called QuickNode, where you joined the C-suite for the first time as chief revenue officer. Can you speak to making that transition and what was it like entering the C-suite for the first time? I really enjoyed that zero to one experience of building a business. And for me, TikTok gave me that opportunity, which I never had before. It was a fantastic experience. At the same time, the leadership changes at the company, and some of this was just driven by some of the turmoil that happened at the company as we were starting to have a CEO who joined from Disney for six weeks and then left. Some of the geopolitical concerns meant that I wasn't necessarily right part of the leadership team at TikTok. So how could I get that kind of experience again? For me, the answer was joining a startup where you can build something, you have that zero to one experience, but at the same time where you can be part of that founding team. And I found that opportunity at this company, QuickNote. So if you recall at the time in early 2021 or so, a bunch of people were focused and were interested in Web3. And some of the stuff was focused on NFTs and consumer applications, but QuickNote, one of the, the things that really drew me to them and to the business model was that they were focused on more of the infrastructure segment there. And so that, to me, was more of a B2B sale and a B2B business model. And that's just my wheelhouse, having spent all of my time before in that similar kind of space. And so the opportunity right, to join a company to do that zero to one to focus on B2B in this new hot space and to learn a new technology, which I was really excited about the potential to disrupt and to, to potentially right, reinvent the financial system. That combination was something that really kind of drew me to joining a startup. That's very interesting insight hearing about the excitement of working on the zero to one stage of a business and also the challenges of working in Web3 and blockchain and beyond at the time. You were at this startup quick note for about two years and eventually you make the decision to transition to another startup, OpenAI, one of the foremost AI companies in the world. Share with me the thought process behind that decision. What motivated your move to OpenAI? Yeah, going from zero to one was fun. We went from less than 10 people when I joined to almost 100 when you start to have some of the, the situations that happen with Sam Bankman-Fried, with FTX, you start to see that the B2B space and that opportunity and that segment within the market really wasn't going to become really, really big. I wanted to think about what could be another area where there is technology with a similar disruptive innovation element but where there was strong fit with businesses, the B2B space. And I 
like many people, started to get really just obsessed with thinking through the AI space. OpenAI is probably one of the most famous within the area of artificial intelligence. They had recently released ChatGPT. They were starting to build their business, which they were had this amazing product. They were, were starting to build out basically the business side. And an opportunity to be part of this platform that was at the center of this whole new wave of innovation reminded me in some ways of just my previous experiences of these big platform companies. But with the added benefit that this was a startup, and so you still have this feel of the zero to one element as you're building a business with a fairly lean team. So it was kind of the combination of that scrappiness from the startup experience with this real belief that this is something that could end up actually driving a ton of innovation and value for the foreseeable future. Now, before we delve into your role at OpenAI, I have to ask, you joined the company during a period of considerable instability and controversy. And for those who aren't familiar, OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, was suddenly fired by their board and then reinstated after a couple of days. And there was a lot of back and forth with Microsoft, who's the owner of OpenAI, among the company's board and other co-founders, as well as employees of the company. It all resolved itself but it caused quite a bit of hoopla in the tech industry and the broader world just given the imprint that OpenAI has left on the landscape, particularly through ChatGPT. Can you tell us a bit about how this played out from your perspective, having just joined the team, especially given that you were one of the signatories of the letter in support of Sam Altman? And I'd also love to hear a bit about how this incident impacted the company over the next several months. Yeah, I joined OpenAI, and then within my first month, we had what we call internally here the blip. And so <laughs> it was this period of time over Thanksgiving week when that happened. We're really happy that Sam is back at the helm. I think that the entire experience is really one where we learned just a couple of things, right? But one was that we had so much support from some of our customers, from our clients. The whole company really came together as we were navigating through this circumstance. And at the end of the day, thrilled with the outcome, which is that Sam is back at the helm because I think that he has just this vision and it enables us to be able to better deliver on the ultimate mission, which is trying to enable and bring the benefits of AI to all of humanity. So it was definitely a period of time one week, right? We were seeing a lot of the company and, and the press and the news cycles from being on the inside, and this was part of the group of signatures as you described, right? To have seen the entire company band together to be putting together that petition to assuring as we went, we end up actually getting to the right outcome, which is Sam back at the helm, really was one of those experiences where it was crazy at the time in terms of just going through that but happy in terms of just we end up actually coming to a resolution where in some ways we end up actually having just this incredible outpouring of support. The company came together. And so in some ways we were almost stronger and then come out of it. And so that was my thinking and feeling around that was just around it just one of those things where I think we came out better at the end. It was a really interesting experience having been uh, at the company for less than a month. And to be part of this group of extraordinary 700 or so folks at this time and to have just seen just everybody coming together 
And then ultimately, right, having Sam back at the helm, some of the sort of adjustments that we made in terms of how we're thinking, how our governance and to ensure that we were being really focused on, on the mission above all else. And I think that this structure can, uh, enables us to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember reading about Web3 and blockchain and crypto as if it was going to be the next big wave. And then it felt like AI came in and completely decimated that trend because there were actually results to show in a way that the crypto space unfortunately blew up, as you pointed out. Now, I want to speak a little bit to your actual role at OpenAI. You're part of the go-to-market team. Can you give us a glimpse into what your day-to-day looks like? What does go-to-market actually entail? Sure. A member of the go-to-market team. A lot of people ask me, my mom says, what exactly do you do all day long? And so our business is divided into two parts. So a lot of people know OpenAI from ChatGPT. And it's this phenomenal application, which a lot of people have been able to access. We recently released the business version of that. So it's ChatGPT with additional enterprise features and controls. That's one part of our business. And then there's the second part of the business, which is our API business. And so we work with companies that are seeking to embed the underlying technology into products, either products that they ship externally to customers or for some internal AI transformation efforts. That's the part of the business that I spend my time on. And so our goal is around how do we enable these companies to build on their platform? How do we select the right ones? Who should we help in terms of actually being able to support? There are a lot of people who potentially could work with us. We're not able to work with almost everybody. But what we start to do is we recognize that from some of the Fortune 500 and AI-enabled startups, right, that there's a lot of benefit in terms of having people who you can work with, who you can start to solution with. We're here at the company. So that's the part of the team that I'm focused on which is working with a segment of players who are focused on building with our underlying tech. Very interesting. Can you give me an example of one of those applications? Sure. So we have a couple of different examples, right? So one, which is one of my favorite, is how we work, for example, with a company called Klarna. I'll work with Klarna. This is its CEO who is just really interested in trying to ensure that we are enabling and using AI across their business. And so what does that actually mean? Well, a couple of different use cases. So one, how do you ensure that people who are working at the company, knowledge workers, have access to ChatGPT, which can drive huge gains in terms of productivity? And so that's one big piece of what we're doing with them. There's a second piece, which is really focused on how do you enable people to scale customer service applications. And so there's a lot of instances when you're working with a company where it might not necessarily be super efficient in terms of just having to interact and work with a human. Say that you have a simple question. In a lot of instances, right, if you go through those click-down buttons, it's not a great experience. And so instead, wouldn't it be so much more efficient if you could actually just type in a request that actually understands and intuits what you are actually after? And if you can improve the customer experience, you can actually make things easier for your customers. You can make things better in terms of actually faster delivery of the right insights or answers right to them. And then for the people who they actually do need to speak to a human being, right, then you're actually directing the most high value, the most complex initiatives. And so there you end up actually being more efficient in terms of your people's time. 
And the ability to start to now implement AI and some of these business processes is one of those things that I think is just really, really interesting. Absolutely. And so we work closely with them, right, in terms of actually building this out through this multi-stage deployment. But the results of it are ones where it's actually better for customers. It can be better in terms of the overall experience of people, employees, and call centers. And at the same time, it can be driving a ton of efficiency for a business um, who's leaning in in terms of being able to think about different use cases for this tech. Sure. And so we try and work with, with companies where that is the focus is around how are we actually trying to build this into our business in a way that is innovative or unique or different. You're alluding to the opportunities that emerge from this, which really seem like the cohesion and community that came out of this. I'm curious if you've felt that there are other opportunities and also challenges that have arisen as a product of this corporate governance drama and scandal that took place. Yeah, I think that it definitely was one of these instances where I remember we were getting concerned questions from some customers and clients. And and so during that period of time, there was a feeling around, well, what is this going to do if people feel like they're not able to rely on us when we might be foundational to their infrastructure in this space? And so if you are working with companies on production level deployments, and all of a sudden your vendor, if you're not sure that they're going to be there, what happens? You definitely felt the pressure during that time. What really struck me going through that experience, though, was how in so many instances, we actually had customers who were coming together saying they really supported us, that we had actually people who were willing to contract with us that exact week. And so that we, I think Sam had mentioned that we didn't lose a single customer during this period of time. And so... Afterwards, it felt really much like business as usual and that we were able to come out stronger. I think that it did raise some questions in terms of just during that period of time of uncertainty, but the fact that we were able to resolve it so quickly and, and the fact that we really came together as a company to ensure that we were supporting our customers above all else during this period of time I think showed the commitment that we really have to the business, right? And to our partners who are building using our underlying tech. And so coming out of it, I felt like we ended up being stronger in a lot of ways. And so, so far, the partners have been really supportive. Yeah. I want to double click on something you just mentioned about the initial concern because you are so foundational in the lives of some of your customers. And I think with a technology like ChatGPT, we see that at an even more widespread level. I use ChatGPT practically every day. And I was talking to a friend the other day who said, I thought ChatGPT was down for a second the other day, and I literally didn't know how I was going to get through my task list, which is pretty amazing for a pretty emergent technology to have accomplished and become that foundational in the lives of people every single day. But I am curious what it is like to be a part of the technology that is so foundational. And as we think about it, there's been a lot of concerns that have emerged in terms of people overusing it, misuse, and a variety of other just criticism around AI, broadly speaking. What concrete organizations do you feel OpenAI, your team, and you yourself as a leader are trying to think about to address the skepticism around AI and just ensure that it is a safe technology for humanity to use? 
I think that with any technology, there are applications that are for good or for bad. And so when the TV came out, right, there were people who were really excited because they could see the moon landing for the first time. But at the same time, people were concerned in terms of it brainwashing their kids and people spending tons of time and then not reading books or things like that. In the same way, there are other technologies that have come out where there is huge potential in terms of advancement. But then people are also thinking about, well, what is the potential harms that can come out? And the rollout of of ChatGPT is one where I think we were really measured in terms of just how we think about the deployment of of most technology. And so as one example of this, GPT-4, we end up actually delaying the release of that by almost six months because we wanted to ensure that we were thinking about all the safety elements around it. Our red teams had time to do the kinds of tests and safeguards that were in place that we felt really confident about releasing it. So our approach is one where we want to pretty iterative. Like that's, that's baked into our philosophy. We want to make sure that we are engaging with policymakers and we are foremost a research institution. So a lot of how we engage as a company is really around making sure that we um, have partnerships with academia, with other policymakers, so that we are doing things in a really measured and thoughtful way, giving society time to adjust. And we're incorporating and baking in that feedback as we go through with safety baked into the mission. So that's around the area of AI safety. I think when you think about just some of the elements around it, is ChatGPT being overused or not overused or just how are we starting to think about that? I think it's in some ways like when pre-Google and post-Google, right? What you're starting to see is a lot of people using it. In some instances, there's going to be adoption for things that you hadn't necessarily thought through in terms of just how where people are starting to find use. And so we are studying the behavior of that a lot. It's interesting in terms of how people are able to use this. I think one of the models that has come out is one where it's not a replacement for people. And so the model that we've started to see really kind of see more uptick is around this idea that ChatGPT is a co-pilot for any knowledge worker in their life. And so it helps you with ideation, but at the same time, right, you still need a human element to edit, to change, to adjust, to reshape your thoughts. And so it helps you in terms of, it's not the final product itself. It's not a replacement for humans. In some ways, it's just a way to make you more productive in any sort of activity that you're doing involving uh, your brain. And so that, to me, seems like it's a much more optimistic future where ChatGPT is an enabler in the same way that now people are Googling all the time. Now it can be an enabler as you're creating a presentation, as you're thinking through hypotheses, as you're considering right different approaches to looking at a problem. And so that, to me, is a much more optimistic and hopeful view of where we might be going and where the, the potential of this technology. I appreciate you sharing that because I feel like there is, to your point, always a bit of a doomsday mentality around the newest tech. And I didn't even think about that in the context of television, right? That, yeah, people were worried about all the after effects. And now it's obviously just such a natural part of our lives and our homes to have a TV. And it's curious to see how AI is going to become even more just endemic to our work and technologies that exist in everyday society. Like I said, it's becoming foundational. So I appreciate you sharing that. I do want to take a step back and speak a little bit more to your personal role and identity in this world 
on one hand, you are a South Asian man in the world of tech, where it is one of the spaces where our community is generally overrepresented. But I'm sure you've also had experiences being part of the queer community and also just being someone that is a person of color in this space who's had the experiences of what it's like to navigate the multifaceted parts of your identity. Can you speak to what it's been like and how your identity has impacted your career trajectory over the number of years that you've been in both finance consulting and now tech today? Sure. And a couple of things. I think that when you think about your identity, there's some parts of it that everybody can see in terms of if you're an Indian. And that was something that was always very visible. But at the same time, there's values that I learned from growing up, right, uh, in the Indian American family that really just were formative and shaped me, but they're not all of me. Uh, I think gay, for example, is one of those things where not a lot of people knew that immediately before coming out. And so it was one of those things where it shapes an identity, but at the same time, it's not the soul who you are, but it is a core piece in terms of as you think about who you are as a person. And then being Indian in tech, I think we do have a lot of Indians who are in technology, but at the same time, a lot of them are actually on the more on the non-sales side. And yeah. so being part of the sales side for me, there's elements of it that were pretty different and unique. At the same time, I grew up in Pennsylvania in the suburbs of Philly. So there weren't that many Indians that were in my community. Definitely weren't a lot of gay Indians in my community. And so this idea, this notion of sometimes being an outsider or being part of the minority is something that I've had throughout my entire life. I really do treasure, right, how some of those elements come together because I think it's helped me sometimes in terms of taking a position of being a devil's advocate, of sometimes being able to look at things in a different perspective. And so those different labels don't define how you view the world, but at the same time, they do shape it. And I think in some ways, right, that ability to sometimes challenge existing assumptions of actually being able to look at a problem in a different way and of having just empathy with somebody who's part of the minority is something that I, I carry with me in terms of just how I operate and in terms of how I work. And I appreciate that and I treasure that. So that's a little bit, I think, to answer your question. Absolutely. Looking back, if you were looking at the version of yourself who is in middle school or high school living in the suburbs of Philadelphia, what piece of advice would you give to the Amol of that day? And thinking about that in the context of advice you would give to young South Asians who are struggling with their own identities and figuring out how to chart their career paths forward. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things, right? The best career advice that I was ever given was that there's no substitute for hard work. And so the values that you carry, it's, it's more important in terms of those types of values than it is around any specific domain expertise, things like that. I think that the other piece of advice which I would give my younger self is around the value of adaptability. And in particular, if you think about going into an industry like technology, where you end up having these waves of innovation, and so you have to kind of quickly become an expert on something, but you have no real way of trying to forecast 10 years, 20 years from now, what exactly is going to be the next big thing. And so what that teaches you is just around the importance of being adaptable, of, think, of being resilient, and of being able to think about what you have, you can take from one experience and how it can apply to something that's not necessarily the same thing. And for me, right, that has been something that I've had to, this idea of just being able to pivot and to reinvent and to move into separate and different spaces, it keeps things more interesting. But at the same time, right, then I would have told my younger self, 
don't worry so much in terms of trying uh, of expecting that you're going to be in the same industry or the same company for 15 years or so, because really being able to adapt to some of these big shifts is actually more important. And so I would have said, don't worry as much. The other piece, I think, is it's about some of the relationships that you make along the way. And so for me, some of the things that I found the most valuable or the most interesting experiences in working were not necessarily just on the specifics of the company or the problem, but it was around how I developed really strong relationships with some of my customers, with people that I worked with. And so going to a place where you feel like you're around really smart people, where they push you to grow and to develop, to me, have been some of the most satisfying elements that I found in my career. It was definitely have drawn me to open AI, for example, right? It's just because the the quality of the the talent, just the, the smartest people that you ever see are all just my coworkers right now. And I just uh, I'm so grateful, right, for that. But also what I recognize is that sometimes it really is so much about the people. And so to over-index on that versus trying to think about everything from a, a business case study to me would be the other piece of advice that I'd offer. Maybe last thing, which is around, you know, so many of us, especially when you're younger, we think that career is the only thing that's important. Yeah. I love the fact that now, like I through work, right, enables me to do other things, to spend more time with my family. That I have this amazing husband, Jens, who I met when I was in business school, and that like we have a life together. And so work is just a component in terms of you work to live. And so I do feel like that's something which is an important part around sometimes thinking about just the other elements of your life and just sort of how what's really important, right? Family. And and that's something which I remember learning from my parents maybe growing up. I don't think I really quite processed it until I ended up much later in my career. So that's the other advice that I'd, I'd offer to, to people who are thinking about this. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing those nuggets of wisdom. I think every single one of them resonates deeply. And I think even as you were speaking about the piece on adaptability, that's so clearly captured in your own story of as you were talking about being at Quick Node and then seeing the quick turn as we saw a lot of the crypto and Web3 market shift and then AI became sort of the next big wave and the ability that you had to even adapt in your own career. And then to your point on a lot of things in life don't just traverse the professional, they also traverse the personal. And that takes me to my last question for you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what is on the horizon for you personally and then for you professionally in the context of open AI, but also the goals you have for yourself in your career. Yeah. From the personal standpoint, I mean, we're hoping to get a dog, I think, in the next year. That's like our, that's Jens and Meyer, that's our main, maybe a place that's outside of the city. In terms of just what I get really excited about, if you can tell from just what I've been working on, a lot of the things that get me really excited is when you have this new technology, but that can actually be really impactful and where you're doing something for the first time in terms of working with a company to drive some sort of business case and that being something that could be really, really interesting and have uh, an impact on the bottom line. And so for me, we're still really early in this revolution. And what I get the most excitement from is, is actually thinking about some of the things that we have in the works this year, working with some of our customers. I think we've seen a lot from 
from the AI standpoint, we've seen a lot of people talking about it, but we haven't yet seen the full effects of it playing out in terms of sure. production rollouts, in terms of businesses adopting it. And so for this year is really when you're going to start to see businesses, companies, the ones that are covering, right, hopefully start to adapt this and start to see some of the benefits for their customers, for their employees, for their own business models. So for me, like that, it's just going to be a really fun time this upcoming year is to actually get some of those proof points and hopefully to drive some of the business results that we're really interested in proving out together and then using this so that we can help others as they use and engage this tech. So that's me an area of excitement. Yeah. And what about you in the long-term horizon of your career as you see it? I mean, do you see yourself continuing in tech? Do you see yourself pushing for leadership in these roles? Do you see yourself in the realm of AI? I'm curious, just based on the different pivots you've made in your career. I think we're early in this stage, for sure. Um, So for me, I think that this is definitely the first year of probably what's going to be a next mega cycle. But what I've also learned through my career in tech is to be humble and to be adaptable. And so I definitely look at my period of time in Web3 as an example where thought it could be something which could be so transformative. And it definitely struggles. And so for me, actually being able to be adaptable, to be building those strong relationships along the way and having a sense of humility when it comes to the ability to predict perfectly five years out or 10 years out in terms of any trajectory of any technology. Those are the kind of the things that I keep in my mind through my journey. Well, Amal, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your story. It's so fascinating to hear not only about the pivots that you've made, but the clear reflection that you've done on what's carried you through your personal and professional life thus far. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciated it. Of course. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.